welcome to this edition of the IIEA Insights Series. My name is David O'Sullivan. I'm the Director General of the Institute, and I'm absolutely delighted to have as our special guest today, uh, Frank Luntz, who's a renowned Republican pundit and commentator, well known for advising politicians on how to craft their message, and also for his developing the use of focus groups as a means of uh, testing and experimenting with political ideas. Uh, Frank is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and holds a doctorate from Oxford, where he was a contemporary of Boris Johnson's. And rumor has it, Frank, that you helped Boris manage his campaign to be president of the student union, but or of the of the, the Oxford Union. Uh, so you you got your pol your political advice goes back a long way. Um, we're going to talk today uh, about the prospects for the midterms and the state of politics in the U.S. Um, let's start, Frank, by asking you how you uh, how you see the prospects for the midterms. The, the Republicans were well in advance. The Democrats bounced back. The Republicans seem to be gaining ground again. What's what's your sense? Uh, I'll make three points. If and this is it's a it's a honor to be communicating to you this way. It's testament to the importance of diplomacy that I establish relationships with ambassadors to the US that last for a lifetime rather than just a term. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, and the more that we're talking and sharing, the less likely we are to have situations, the tragic situation, which is what is happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. First, if all you see is coverage of abortion and of um, Trump, you know the Democrats are winning. If all you see is coverage about affordability and Joe Biden, you know the Republicans are winning. And it really is that simple. If the issue agenda is about costs, prices, inflation, then it's that's the Republican turf. Republicans have a 25-point advantage on that. If it goes to social issues, which the Democrats have been trying to do over the last 12 weeks, maybe maybe um, four months, then you know that they're doing well. Second is that Joe Biden is not the asset that a, an incumbent president usually is. He simply cannot go to the places that most presidents go to. He cannot, he cannot keep up the same schedule. And so it makes it more difficult for Democrats to use the power of the White House. And third, in any first uh, midterm election, after party takes control of Congress and the White House, that party always has trouble because there's always a rejection. There's always a sense of, I want to give the other side a chance. Now, when you combine all that and you look at the financial advantage that Republicans have in the House, and the financial advantage that Democrats have in the Senate, what's happening right now is not that surprising. The Republicans, I believe, will end up with somewhere between a 12 and 20 seat majority in the House. And on the Senate side, I hate to do this, but it looks to me like it's 50-50, which is a status quo in the Senate and, the, and Kevin McCarthy, with a nice Irish name, I expect him to be elected Speaker of the House on January 3rd. And what are the um, key areas where, you know, outside observers, what should we be watching? Uh, 
I mean, you, you've described it in kind of macro terms. Uh, are there are there states or, or contests where you think this will be particularly, you know, where, where the, the outcome will finally be decided? Yeah, there are two of them. And this determines whether Republicans have the majority or not. And in order for the GOP to get the majority, they have to win both of these seats, Pennsylvania and Georgia. We had a debate 48 hours ago with the Democratic nominee uh, has suffered a stroke, which I did, but not nearly as debilitating as his. And the debate really showed just how damaging that was and how significant that still is in the race. The Republican candidate, Dr. Oz, had closed an 11 point gap down to about four points. And this debate happened exactly two weeks before the election. Honestly, that is now way too close to call because Pennsylvanians, the, the cities, the urban and suburban areas have become very democratic. But the middle part of the state, the joke is you've got Pittsburgh and Philadelphia on the ends and you've got Alabama in the center. I believe that Fetterman's performance in that debate is going to crush him among suburban voters. And so that race now is definitely too close to call. And in Georgia, you got the reverse. The Republican candidate is not fit to be a senator. And we saw this, a challenge in completing sentences, a challenge even in telling the truth about his own personal life. But Georgia, over the last eight weeks, has been trending Republican in the governor's race and in the Senate race and other races. So once again, you've got a race that's absolutely too close to call. I saw where um, Nate Cohen in, in the New York Times, I just read coming over um, on, on the plane, uh, an article where he, he, he didn't exclude that you could actually have a, a, a surprise Democratic win uh, across, the, across the picture, uh, including in the House and, and maybe even in the Senate. Do you, do you think that's uh, you know, completely beyond the, the bounds of all possibilities? Uh, no, I don't. No, I don't. And I know that that gets attention and the New York Times is not doing itself well by showing all the Democratic opportunities and none of the Republican opportunities that I think that this relatively status quo election with the Republicans taking the House is not only possible, but I think it's very much likely. And I'm watching on the House side, the Hispanic Latino communities, because right now they are so frustrated and angry with the, with the leadership of the black community. They're not pro-Republican by any means. In, 2020, in 2016, they voted 28% for the GOP. In 2020, it was 38%. Mm. Now, 2022, it looks like it's gonna be 44%. If it's higher than that, you're gonna see Republicans winning seats along the Mexican border that they were, that were toss-ups. You see Republicans winning uh, seats in agricultural areas. I actually think it's more, if you had to pick, is it more likely that Democrats surprise and do well or Republicans surprise and do really well? I think it's more likely the Republicans surprise that they do really well. Um, we have a question from uh, one of our uh, uh, online listeners, uh, Frank Callanan, who is the Secretary General of a very large trade union here uh, in Ireland, FORSA. 
Um, he, he asks you, Frank, if the economy is the issue that would benefit the Republicans, what would Frank have to say about the strength of the labor market and if it has any bearing on, 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 on things? It does. And let me first kind of sh share with you all. The union movement act in the U.S. is stronger today than it was, than it has been in probably a decade. And that's why you have companies like Amazon and, and um, uh, Apple, that FedEx, that have resisted um, Starbucks, that have resisted unionization. And now it's definitely possible that the hostility that existed by the general public towards unions has dissipated. It's not that people love the union effort, but the resentment of it no longer exists, having been through COVID, having knowing how much people had to struggle to get food, to purchase items, and how the workforce was very active and very involved in making life possible. And the public now wants insists that they be compensated for their efforts. So I would suggest that it might be interesting for you to come over in 10 days and watch the election from Washington and use that time to meet with your, with your labor union brethren because it's not that it's a warm embrace, but the rejection is over and the acceptance of labor when it is centrist and it is cooperative is probably higher now than any time I've been doing polling in a long, long time. That's first. Second is that we do not have the same kind of recession that we normally would consider. We've never had a recession with truly full employment. But Joe Biden makes a really big mistake by assuming that people feel the economy strong. They don't. And I'd say to you all that as inflation rips through the Irish landscape, as people find it difficult to afford food or fuel, when their insurance payments go up, when their car payments go up, or they can't even afford to purchase a new car, the public isn't going to think that that's a strong economy. Don't tell people that happy days are here again, even if they have a job, because if they can't afford the necessities, they will themselves feel like the economy is suffering. And by the way, I apologize for these long answers, but I know this material and I wanna give you the substance and I want you to, to get both sides. I want you to get all sides of the argument. No, no, thank you. It's uh, very important. I mean, I, the, the other comment I suppose is that the, the, high on, the high employment level reflects also quite a lot of people who dropped out of the labor market, right? So it's- uh, um, yeah, And actually that point's a very good point. And this is something that Republicans warn people about, and this helps their campaign in 10 days, which is if you continue to write people really, really good checks, they're not going to want to go back to work. If you pay them well to stay home, they're not going to want to go to work. And that's one of the reasons why so many people have stayed out of the workforce. And yet we have in the States over 11 million jobs that need to be filled, which puts pressure on wages. And, and that pressure of job shortages, along with the increase in salaries, makes this the strangest economy that we've had in modern times. Yeah. Um, Frank, can, I, can we talk a little bit about the, the, the other 
elections which will be held um, uh, next month, which is namely the, the state elections. Um, because I think we sometimes people looking at the states from Europe forget how important the state elections are uh, for people's ordinary lives, how much is actually decided at the state level, but also because of the if the 2024 election, which we'll come to, if there were to be contesting of votes and whether votes were valid and so on, and, and the, the important positions which, which are frequently decided at state level, what, how do you think that's going to play out? The two most likely presidential candidates are going to get reelected in relative landslides, which is the governor of California and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis in Florida and Gavin Newsom in California. And watch as they immediately pivot to look for a national campaign for their respective political parties. So 2024 has already begun. Second is that I am going on news channel after news channel to to call the alarm to this election deniability and how much of a threat it is to the American political process. I am nervous that candidates in Georgia, candidates in Arizona, and these two are in particular, are going to refuse, New Hampshire, important states, are going to refuse to accept the results if it shows that they lose. And it's absolute BS. And I say to those of you listening to me right now, you should not let this happen to your country because this is an asset. We have a higher degree of distrust of our governing institutions than at any time in modern history. Gallup has been polling this for over 60 years and across the board, the only institution that's holding up right now is the military. All the other institutions are down. Some of them are way down, such as the media. And, and second is we have a, a higher degree of distrust of the electoral process than ever. And it's being fed by Donald Trump uh, to a lesser degree, Stacey Abrams, who is the gubernatorial candidate in Georgia. But both sides, the Democrats claim that there's voter suppression and Republicans claim there's voter corruption. It's a different side of the same coin, but it is dangerous as hell. It's having an effect. And once again, no matter how much your politics disagree with each other, this is a perfect place to have a conversation about not allowing it, the political rancor, to destroy support for the democratic institutions and the democratic process. How do you think this view of the world has taken such firm root uh, in, in the United States? Because I must admit, when I was, when I was living there, I was deeply shocked at, at, at how, you know, how many people did hold those views that uh, you couldn't trust the system. Um, uh, and I, I, I couldn't quite explain where, where it came from, because, you know, seen from the outside, we've always held up the United States as sort of the paragon of, of, uh, of democratic virtue, which, of course, was also an excessively rosy picture, as we know. But now we're all learning about gerrymandering. We're learning about voter suppression, about, you know, how many ballot boxes and how far away they are from urban centers, what you need to prove that you can vote and so on. Um, it, it does seem that America has taken, a, as you say, a, a dangerous turn in, in, in the, the very functioning of the democratic system. Well, it used to be that Americans had a healthy skepticism, which is always important. Skepticism along with information. And now we've got two competing challenges. And they're both being fed by 
a lack of education, which means a lack of civics, a lack of respect, a lack of civility. And that is being fed by the complete destruction of credibility thanks to social media. We don't collect our information to inform us. We collect our political information to affirm us. And that is wreaking havoc on our political process. Those who were cynical are now outright angry and vocal. Those who were skeptical are now cynical. Those who, who are neutral are now skeptical. We've all moved over. And the shift has happened across the, across the political spectrum. And that's because you've got people on both sides yelling and screaming. And they've got a wonderful platform through social media to have their information carried not to thousands of people, but to millions of people. Let's think a little bit now about the, the implications of what you, know, you, you, you suggest will happen uh, in, uh, in, the, in the midterms. We have a question from Vinnie Hurahan who says, if Republicans can expect to retake control of the House, as Frank has predicted, does this mean that Mr. Biden's agenda is effectively dead in the water? Um, and then he says, how will this affect uh, this forecast into his reelection prospects? I want to come back to that, that as a second issue. But the other question, the other area in relation to the impact, what about Ukraine? Uh, would there likely be a shift on U.S. policy on, on Ukraine if the Republicans uh, regain control of the House, not to mention um, the Senate? So Ukraine, Kevin McCarthy, who's a very good friend of mine, was not misquoted. The quote was taken out of context. All that he said was, if Republicans get the House, there won't be a blank check. That means that Joe Biden will not be able to say to the House of Representatives, I want 24 billion. And within a week, he gets 24 billion. The Republicans will, will, will ask and demand to see the details of it, where the money's going, what the results of these investments are. It is not saying that the money, that the investment and the support stops. I'm gonna repeat that because this is important. Republicans are not going to cut funding. There are about two dozen Republicans that are against funding. And there's about a dozen Democrats who are against funding. They will unite, but that is still the vast, tiny minority. It just means that there will be a closer look at what the money is requested for. That's number one. And number two, about the agenda. The president has the ability through executive order and executive action to bypass Congress. It means that you won't have any sweeping legislation because it'll be viewed as, as um, unconstitutional. But a president does have a considerable amount of power. And if the Republicans get the House and don't get the Senate, they will exercise that power to put brakes on sweeping reform, but Biden will still be able on the edges to make a, a meaningful measurable difference in his legislation. It just means you can't overhaul healthcare. You can't overhaul the, the, uh, the energy system, but you will be able to maintain climate rules and you will, will be able to maintain the expenditures that have already been approved. This is the level of anger. It has never been this high. We started asking the, this question in 1992 when Ross Perot ran for president, and it's now been 30 years. 
and anger in this country was never more than 66, 67%. And now it's approaching three out of four Americans. And this is why you see all this yelling and screaming, why you see this intensity online, uh, why it's impossible to hold an open town hall without people getting up and being disruptive because Americans really are mad as hell. And they got different things they complain about process. We asked a simple question. What is American democracy at its best? And the number one answer is freedom. And the number two answer is equal or equality. Now watch, when we ask them to describe American democracy today, this wow. is awful. Yeah. Trouble, yeah. broken, bad. But I got one more for you. We wanted to know what the perfect congressman, how you would describe them. And by the way, I showed this to members of Congress. And they looked at this and they all felt great. What describes the perfect member of Congress? Honest, knowledgeable, accountable, trustworthy. And then I asked them, describe the typical member of Congress today. Wow. And they started to laugh. And I said to them, if I show this to the American people, they vote you all out of office. This is the explanation for why there's this much hostility. It's the idea that we know what we want and we are so far away from that 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 makes us frustrated, anxious, and downright angry. Wow, that's, thank you for sharing those. That, that's very, very, very impressive. Well, let's, let's look ahead now to 2024 then. Um, what, uh, what's your prediction? Who, who are gonna be the two candidates? Let's, let's take that as the, the first question. It is not going to be Joe Biden. You cannot run for office if you cannot. You can't run for office if you can't walk. And I have not been in his presence since he was inaugurated. But my friends who have tell me that it is alarming now, particularly with the pressures of the office, and that they don't believe he's even going to be able to serve out his entire term. I do not engage in that kind of speculation. But the difference between Biden and Reagan, who I knew at the end of his term, is significant. And the public, potential scholars, now believe that Reagan should have been removed because of his health situation in the last nine months. And I will tell you, point blank, that Joe Biden is in worse condition than Ronald Reagan was. So I start there. I then have to look at the vice president, Kamala Harris. And she is the least popular vice president since Dan Quayle. You have to go back 40 years, uh, 35 years, to find someone in her position less popular. And I don't believe that she gets the nomination. She's got a core support within the black community and among young women but it's not enough. And in the polling that we're doing, she starts at 21, 22%. To be a true front runner, by the way, the comparison on the Republican side is that Donald Trump is at 50% and Ron DeSantis, who's number two, is in the 20s. In the Democratic side with Kamala Harris, only in the low 20s when she is so well-known and having just run for president, that tells you that a lot of people are not keen on her. And I think you should watch the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who comes from Kamala's 
Kamala's uh, home state. Gavin knows how to raise money. He's got a war chest that he can immediately turn over to a presidential race. And even with her occupying the position of vice president, Newsom can outraise her. Other people to look at, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, who has said privately that he will not challenge a African-American woman, but there's a lot of demand on him to do so. Mitch Landrieu, most of you will not be familiar with. He was the mayor of New Orleans, the lieutenant governor of Louisiana, and he's now in the Biden White House handling the infrastructure. Best retail politician ever. In fact, I'm gonna give you a list of six people on this call. We got a bunch of participants, write this down. This is your homework assignment. These are the people I want you to look at because these are, these are the incredible people who could possibly run. On the Democratic side, uh, uh, Joe Manchin, who you may be familiar with because he's held up an awful lot of Biden's legislation. He's a Democrat, but he's a conservative Democrat. He's older. He's a no-nonsense, straight-talking, very homespun candidate. I don't think the Irish, I don't think you're all going to like him because he's too common for you. And you guys like the John Kennedy, the beautiful rhetoric and the flowing uh, <laughs> verbiage. But Joe Manchin is already has his own base of support. Second is Cory Booker, as I mentioned, because he you will like. Black, New Jersey senator, former mayor of Newark, very successful mayor and one of the best speakers the Democrats have had in the last 20 years. Third on the Democratic side, uh, uh, the Senator from Colorado, uh, uh, Michael Bennett. And the reason why he is so interesting to me is he ran education for the city of Denver and our schools 24 hours ago, we were informed as a country that our schools had completely failed during that COVID period and that we've lost an entire year of education and we've, we've fallen back a decade in terms of our ability to read and write and it's really embarrassing. And then there's one more. Manchin, I got you the four. Bennett, Booker, Manchin, and, uh, and uh, Mitch Landry. Four people to look at on the Republican side I would have told you Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, because he's the smartest U.S. senator, and he could change the entire tone of the debate, but he just accepted a position as the president of the University of Florida. So I think that precludes him. The other person to look at is Tim Scott, African-American senator from South Carolina, who delivered the State of the Union response to Joe Biden last year. Incredible communicator, a healer, someone who approaches politics from a faith-based approach. And these are the six people that I urge you, write them down, Google them, and you'll see why they are so special. And if you were, if you were betting, you think Mr. Trump will, will take the Republican nomination? I think he runs. I will tell you, and I know this for a fact, that he was going to announce a week from today and everyone went batshit crazy on him told him that if he lost the Senate, they would blame it on him. He thought, because he's delusional, and he thought that he was going to win this big election, the House and Senate, and he would take credit for it. Then when he was presented with the real information that the House would go Republican, but relatively close, and the Senate is more likely to go Democrat, and he would be blamed for it, he backed down. 
I believe that he will announce before the end of the year because he wants all the attention on him. And he's going to start with a tremendous lead. But Governor DeSantis of Florida, don't follow the national numbers. This is probably the most important piece of inside advice I can give you. Hillary Clinton was beating Barack Obama by 50% to 20% nationwide when the Iowa caucus happened and Obama beat her. By the time they got to South Carolina, Obama had a 30-point lead. By the time they got to, to Super Tuesday, uh, Obama, uh, sorry, Hillary Clinton had a 30-point lead. And on Super Tuesday, let me explain this so you can understand it. On Super Tuesday, Clinton was still beating Obama by 10 points nationwide as Obama was beating her in state after state. The reason why, among those who are focused on this campaign, they've had enough of Trump. Iowa, and these are the four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Florida. In those four states, uh, DeSantis is within 10 points, 15 points, rather than losing to Trump by 30 or 35 points. Watch those four states and you will understand what's gonna happen in the election. Trump will start off as a prohibitive favorite, but mark my words, because of the focus groups that I do, I know that a lot of Trump voters love him and believe the election was stolen, but they want to move on. They want to get on, they call it chaos, and they wanna put all that chaos behind them. Very interesting. Uh, I have a question now from, uh, Nora Owen, uh, a member of the board of the Institute and a uh, former minister in the Irish government. Um, she asks, will this cynicism lead to a very low turnout and people getting uh, elected with a very small percentage of the votes? And she also asks, are there still problems with voter machines, which may lead to, to some problems? Okay, y'all get to ask one question at a time because I'm not smart enough. In Ireland, <laughs> your school system teaches people to be able to answer two or three questions. I can only answer one. Uh, it doesn't matter. Voter machines fail every election cycle. And there are some places now in Arizona and Georgia that are going to count ballots by hand rather than uh, by machine, which is going to be a horrible decision because, it, okay, here's my second big insight for you that you'll know and no one else will. The machine vote is always a Republican vote. Republicans vote on election day. Democrats vote absentee and they vote early. In many states, Arizona is an example, and the best example is Pennsylvania. By rules of the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, how they count votes, the machine goes first of that day, then the early vote is added to it, and then the last thing are the absentee ballots, and they're only counted, open and counted, after the election is over, so after 8 p.m. So you're going to see Dr. Oz, the Republican, go way far ahead as they count the early votes. And you'll see this. With a, I think that Oz is going to be ahead with about 60% of the vote counted. Oz will be ahead maybe seven or eight points. And then you're going to see the race narrow and narrow and narrow. It's not that votes are being dumped, which is what Donald Trump claims. They're simply counting the absentee ballots, which they are not allowed by, by regulation to count before the polls close. So that's going to create all sorts of, I want to say the word shit, but I know you guys are Irish, so you don't use that kind of language. Oh, no, we are very, very well spoken. Yes. Well, it's going to create a shit storm. 
And that's going to be part of the accusations of voter fraud. Uh, and then you're going to have the Republicans responding with voter corruption that people should not be allowed to vote. So yes, the machines may fail, but it's already baked into the system and Pennsylvania is going to be ground zero of that. Uh, I believe Georgia actually is not going to be because I know the Secretary of State there and he's completely prepared for this. Here is a very conservative Republican Secretary of State who told Donald Trump, no, you're not going to screw with our elections. And it's one of the reasons why Trump has been silent. The governor of Georgia said to the president, you're breaking the law. And we need politicians like that who are willing to speak up and challenge the power in their own political party. I'm waiting for Democrats to do the same thing with Stacey Abrams that, uh, that uh, 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 Kemp, the Republican governor, did with Trump. Now, there is a second question. About low turnout. It's exactly the opposite. It looks like we're going to have a higher turnout in this off-year election than we've had maybe in 100 years. 2020 was the highest turnout election by percentage of, of registered voters since 1916. And I think that 2022 is going to be similarly high for an off-year election. It'll be way down from 2020, but it'll be up from 2018. Okay. Um, I've got uh, another question here from Andy McGuire of the uh, Technical University of Dublin saying, uh, if Ireland, if Europe, and particularly Ireland, tends to follow US trends, what advice would you give us to avoid the negative repercussions of polarization while maintaining an open and discursive political society? You guys can do something that we cannot, and I'm going to deny ever saying this, and by just you just reminded me that not only do I want to come and see you in May, but I want to come and teach in May. And you've got some very successful uh, universities and colleges in and around Dublin that hopefully you can find a place for me to, to spout off this stuff. Um, you guys don't have a First Amendment in your constitution. You don't have something that says that you cannot regulate free speech, you cannot regulate the press. You have the ability to hold social media accountable, which we cannot do because our Supreme Court will overrule it. And I think you have to get control over the lies and distort, not distortions. You have the right, I think, to say what you want to say, regardless of whether it's true or not. But when it comes to issues like health, uh, science, there's a problem when the public is being told on websites that absolutely look, absolutely look reputable, that are out and out lies. We can't control it, but I think that you can. And in the end, you have to make that decision. Are you willing to allow your population to be grossly misinformed? When things are factually provable to be false. We can't, and maybe you can. And that singly will make a difference in protecting the health of your democracy. Thank you. Um, another question here from Peter McLoon, who's also a board member. Um, will the, the real threat presented by global warming feature in the political campaigns of either the Republicans or the Democratic parties, or are there simply no votes in this topic? There are on the Democratic side in a primary. The, and by the way, the whole issue of climate change, or cl I call it climate, 
Because when you add the word change to it, you politicize it. So you talk about, in America, you talk about the climate challenge or the climate crisis, not climate change. 91% of Democrats believe it's real, 87% of independents believe it's real. And when I say real, that not only is it happening, but humans are causing it. And it's now up to 69% of Republicans believe it's real. So that issue is done. And the challenge is how far do you go? So Joe Biden uh, killed the Keystone pipeline between Canada and the US. He's made it impossible to explore for energy, uh, both offshore and on, on land. And our gas prices, our energy prices are, are ridiculously high and they're going back up again because of what the Saudis have done. And the fact is we have, we have a choice in America. Either we buy energy from Iran and Venezuela or the prices go up to, to levels that nobody can afford or we have shortages. So the question is how much, and this is a great debate topic for you all. How much, how do we balance this? This winter, when the Russians keep turning off that pipeline to Europe, that's going to affect your own prices, whether or not you've got access to energy and you do, but at what point do we balance affordability and availability with, uh, with climate, and I'm not uh, an expert. I don't, don't I don't know what the answer is, but I know that that's another area for you guys to sponsor a debate or really deep discussion, because this is a real issue that we are generally facing right now. On the Republican side, they want to temporarily open up for more exploration. On the Democratic side, they don't. But on the Democratic side, they're now uh, unleashing our private oil supply which is now down to lowest levels that it's been in 50 years. Frank, this has been a great conversation. I can't let you leave us because I know you are a great Anglophile. I know you follow British politics almost as closely as you follow uh, US politics. Um, and I really would love to, to, to hear what you have to say about uh, Prime Minister Sunak and, and the prospects for uh, the return to some greater political stability and predictability in, in British politics under, under his new premiership. Yeah, I'll make your prediction, and that's more predictable, that Labour wins the next, next election in a landslide. The question is, is it a 1997 landslide? Uh, it's amazing to me that Britain has now, as its Prime Minister, not only was this leadership not elected because it was only the conservatives who voted to put Liz Truss in office, but they actually voted against Sunak and now he's their prime minister. So the labor people haven't voted for him. The Lib Dems haven't voted for him. The Green Party hasn't voted for him and his own conservative party actually voted against him. And now he's their prime minister. Uh, I'm just blown away by it. Number two is that his policies are actually not the policies of the mainstream conservative party. He is going to spend more, has been spending more, and he's going to tax more. And that is not what the conservatives generally want. He's smart, he's stable. He is, from a visual standpoint, exactly who you want. In fact, I was shocked to find out how small he was because in all the pictures I see of him and how he carries himself, he carries himself as a bigger person than he actually is. 
uh, I think British politics, just like American politics, is pretty damaged by what has happened since Brexit. And I know you all care about the uh, the soft border, the hard border, how you how you deal with uh, with the North versus you all. And I get nervous when people call me a Republican because I know it means something different in Ireland than it does in America. But uh, I'll close on this note. Joe Biden is a genuine friend of the Irish people. And he is probably more pro-Ireland, more pro-Irish than any president since JFK. So you should use that to your advantage. You should get him over there every year. Um, and, and just know that the US cares about peace in your island, about reconciliation in however it can be achieved, and that you have a president and an administration that does pay attention to what's happening in Dublin. Frank Luntz, thank you so much. It's been a delight. Great to see you again. Uh, great to see you in such great shape and, and as ever insightful and informative, and we will definitely take you up on your offer to visit us uh, next year and, and meet in, in person and share. We'd, we'd be able to see whether your predictions came true, okay? Thank you very much. Uh, and with that, uh, the session is closed. Thank you.